thank you very much for joining us and a, a very warm welcome to our, to our guest today uh, to talk about uh, a public finance topic, but a slightly different, uh, there's a bit of echo here, I think, if you can, uh, let's see if it's now, is it better now? I think the echo is gone, yeah. Okay, so thank you for joining us for this uh, public finance uh, topic. We work a lot on public finance issues here at Bruegel, but this time with a, a slightly different slant, and I think it's an important slant, and uh, uh, thank you, Francesco, for, for, for thinking to put this on the agenda. It's about the, the quality of finances, now, not just the quantities of finances where we typically try to monitor, but this time we want to talk also about the quality of uh, finances and, and, and what we can do with that to improve both of the effects uh, but also the sustainability of finances. I think these are the two big things. And I have a very prestigious panel here. Thank you for coming. Uh, I'll introduce you, Boris Cornet, here on, on, on my right from the OECD, who is going to give us a, an introductory uh, presentation for about 20 minutes to set the scene, followed by some discussions with uh, Sven Langedijk from, from ECFIN uh, in the European Commission, and Francesco Babadia, who is a senior fellow here at, uh, at Bruegel. So, uh, without further ado, uh, Boris, why don't I give you the floor? and. Uh, um, 20 minutes for the presentation. Thank you. Thank you very much. I am uh, very pleased uh, to be here. Many thanks to the uh, organizers for the kind uh, invitation. So I'm going to present work uh, that uh, we have done at the OECD um, to uh, inform our understanding of the quality of public finances, uh, especially with the view of applying it to the country reviews uh, that uh, we are doing so that uh, we could um, get a sense of the recommendations uh, um, uh, that uh, we are doing in the, in the area of public finance reform to get an idea of what are their quantitative uh, consequences for economic growth and uh, their implications for the distribution of uh, income. Why are we uh, doing that? Well, a very obvious but still worth uh, reminding reason is that, uh, I mean, governments are a huge part of our economies, they're about half of our uh, economies. And uh, if you look at the structure of their um, interventions in the economy, so here the structure of uh, spending in a way that's uh, adjusted uh, for the cycle, well, you see that it's been uh, drifting up first in the first decade of the 21st century under uh, the impact of rising health expenditure mainly, and in the second decade, uh, increasing pension expenditure. So it's been an expansion with some change in structure, but a passive change in structure to a very large extent. And uh, the same thing has happened on the tax side, where, I mean, revenues uh, have had to follow. I mean, they've not always followed, as we know from uh, all uh, the discussions, all the difficulties we have with deficits and debt. But uh, still, uh, to some extent, they've had uh, to follow. But it's been, again, largely a passive uh, change uh, uh, without a drastic um, evolution in uh, the composition of uh, government revenue. These uh, averages, which were across OECD members, hide um, enormous differences uh, in uh, the structure of uh, public finances. Here, uh, this is illustrated by one of the uh, I mean, most contrasted items, which is uh, public investment. Um, but the same holds even if we look at big items on the revenue side, like personal income taxes and social security contributions, which really have to be looked at together because they are uh, uh, 
And for the most part, uh, taxes uh, on labor, of course, there is the capital part in personal income tax, but um, for the largest part, and uh, a lot of social security, uh, a lot of personal, I mean, if they are split, it uh, generates uh, sort of artificial differences uh, across countries, but even taken together, uh, they are very different uh, across countries, and it's the same for the taxation of consumption, where uh, in the OECD, membership, uh, we have countries, I mean, with the US and Japan uh, being uh, prominent examples, where consumption is lightly taxed, and others, um, mostly in Europe, uh, where uh, it is used uh, much more uh, heavily. And um, our main point uh, is that uh, these differences in uh, the structure, also the size, I will come back to that, but these differences in the structure of spending and uh, tax mixes have implications for economic growth and its uh, distribution across uh, the population. And to, um, to this uh, project is um, the second leg of work that we started uh, about, uh, I mean, uh, about 10 years ago where we looked at these uh, effects in a qualitative way, you know, what is positive, what is negative for growth and inequality. But uh, in uh, this project, we made um, a big effort to try and quantify as much as possible these uh, impacts. And we did that by um, using and also building time series uh, of, of uh, comparable data for tax structure and uh, spending. Actually, on tax structure, is relatively easy to do because governments know very well uh, where they are getting their money from. And it's reasonably comparable across countries. I mean, a dollar of um, a euro of VAT in one country looks very much like a euro VAT in another country. Whereas uh, on the spending side, it's uh, much more complicated uh, to gather comparable data. So there had to be work to build it. And then we used uh, uh, panel uh, estimates to uh, uh, quantify the effects. I will not dwell on the estimation methodology too long uh, today. The only point I will flag is that this work is purely about the long-term effects. So we filtered out all the cyclical aspects. So the one thing that uh, this work will be uh, totally silent about is any Keynesian effects and differences in Keynesian effects, differences in multipliers across uh, different public finance items. So what I'm, going, uh, what I'm presenting today is uh, about uh, outcomes that are happening at a horizon of uh, five years or uh, longer. So what do we find when we do this analysis? So we find um, uh, essentially we have uh, four kinds of outcomes. Since we have two, I mean, we have things that can be good or bad for economic growth and measures, public finance adjustments that can be good or bad for the distribution of income. I mean, good being more equalizing and uh, bad uh, exacerbating uh, inequalities for the distribution of income. And uh, so we have a category of win-win uh, uh, reforms, which at the same time boost long-term uh, economic output and uh, work in the direction of greater economic uh, equality. And that's uh, uh, when you do revenue-neutral reform, where you reduce the effective tax rate, accounting everything, including the withdrawal of benefits on low-income earners that you finance by a proportional increase in the other forms of taxation, and it's quantitatively quite uh, powerful as well. And another uh, one that has the same characteristic 
is an increase uh, in uh, inheritance taxes, which allows you to reduce the uh, other sources of uh, revenue. And um, we did the analysis with data on uh, income would probably have even stronger effects in terms of the distribution of uh, wealth, which unfortunately we could not measure for the lack of uh, time series on the wealth um, distribution. So to give a flavor, I will sh we have uh, this kind of charts for all the measures. I will show it only for uh, this one here to give an idea of the kind of quantitative estimates we can have. This is a plot of the long-term change in uh, disposable income that is estimated to uh, happen after the labor tax wage uh, for low income earners, 33% uh, below average income, has been reduced by one percentage point, and the money generated by that has been used to, um, no, sorry, the money needed to fund that has been raised from uh, other taxes. And you see that people at the bottom benefit more because they benefit from the general positive effect on growth, which comes from greater um, labor force participation and so and greater employment at the lower end. So this benefits everybody. But of course, they also benefit more from the fact that their own effective tax rate has been reduced. So they have an extra boost that is visible on the left-hand side of the chart, which are the effects for the lower income decides. Uh, and so uh, we have the same for the other uh, measures. Then we have a bunch of uh, measures which are public finance uh, reforms uh, that we um, identify as uh, producing positive output effects without significant changes to the income distribution. So they include uh, reallocation towards public investment, uh, in fact, reforms that um, um, reduce uh, the rise, slow down the rise in um, pension spending. In, in the tax mix, shifts towards a greater use of recurring property taxes, or the property taxes that are paid uh, each year, not the transaction taxes on property, and lowering uh, the effective corporate income tax rates. And um, here, just one word to say that the, I mean, the result that this is positive for growth is uh, really uh, uncontroversial. One that is a little bit more is the fact that we find no systematic effect on the distribution of income, but uh, remember that we look only at uh, long-term uh, effects, and uh, we are looking at OECD economies, which uh, for most of them are very open and uh, a strand of the recent literature on uh, corporate income taxation is that in, an, uh, in open economies where capital mobility is much greater than labor mobility, a lot of the incidence of corporate income tax over time will be on uh, the uh, labor factor. No, on public investment, one word to say that there are limits to public investment. There are limits, of course, at the micro level. Uh, there can be bad projects, but even at the macro level, if you already have a very high capital stock an, in, an aggregate increase in the capital stock uh, does not necessarily generate positive uh, long-term effect on growth. We find that. And if we look at uh, um, this uh, region to the, lower to the right side of the chart uh, where uh, the effect turns uh, negative, we have actually only one OECD country that is there, which is uh, Japan. And then we have uh, reforms that are more uh, problematic in the sense that they are positive for output in the long term, but they are also generating a more dispersed uh, distribution of income, or, I mean, they are benefiting the rich more, to put it uh, differently. But what we find when we uh, 
um, put together the output and um, the distributional effect is that the output effects are stronger so that um, when they are combined with the distributional effects, in absolute terms, they, these changes leave uh, nobody worse off, even if they increase dispersion. But they still come with, uh, I mean, the difficulties uh, related to this uh, wider income dispersion. And they are changes in the size of uh, government. I will come back uh, to this. We, all the other detailed reforms are for um, fixed size of government, fixed spending, fixed revenue with reallocation, but we also look at the effect of government size separately to uh, avoid uh, mixing the two. Another one is reducing uh, public subsidies uh, because we, often, when we know the, that they are often economically distortive, but very often they are there to protect vulnerable groups and indeed we find that when they are reduced in uh, the long term they tend to come with uh, lower incomes for the most vulnerable group and of course lower net wealth taxes I mean they will benefit the rich much more than the rest of the population even if reducing them means uh, reducing a quite important source of distortion and so something that is positive for the productive potential of uh, economies. Uh, one additional word on the size of government, um, where we uh, find that the size of government does not have a systematic uh, link with long-term economic performance. However, it does when taken together, interacted with uh, the effectiveness of government. Ideally, we would like to measure the effectiveness program by program, spending item by spending item, and it's something I hope uh, that can be done uh, systematically in uh, the future. For now, we have a measure we like, which comes from the World Bank, which is, uh, the, as part of their um, global governance indicators, they have an indicator of government effectiveness. This was designed more for developing countries, but actually we find it works well also for developed countries. And so it ranks countries here from the left, which is, I mean, lower perceived effectiveness to the right, higher perceived effectiveness. You see, and um, what we find that when this is interacted with the size of government, um, when effectiveness is very high, a bigger government is not necessarily negative for long-term performance and can even be associated with better performance uh, for the group of Scandinavian countries that you see in uh, the dark blue part uh, of the chart uh, on the right-hand side. And this is to say that we can do the same sort of distributional calculations that I briefly showed uh, before. We can also look at, for the items that have no distributional effects, at long-term effects on the level of GDP. What this chart shows, um, we not comment on all the items, obviously, is that the, the spending items, and you see uh, especially investment at the top, tend to have bigger quantitative effects than the tax items that you see more at the bottom of the chart. Something that is not visible on this uh, chart is that uh, the speed of the um, impact is also um, greater for taxes. People adjust faster to taxes than uh, spending reforms take time to produce positive benefits. So that if you look at a 10-year horizon, the tax uh, reforms have the same positive effects as the spending reforms. But if you look at longer and longer horizons, then public investment uh, um, uh, changes uh, in subsidy programs, uh, pension, which also by definition takes long time to uh, happen, start producing their effects. Then what does it mean for countries taken uh, in a way one by one? Since we looked at 
all the items of uh, public spending. What we did was we took public spending, we divided it in uh, meaningful economic categories and tested effects for each of them. Some of them had no effect, uh, uh, which means in a statistical sense, which means we can consider that uh, it's um, uh, a, at least in average statistic, uh, statistical term equivalent to zero, and others for which we have effects. And same on the tax side, we can uh, uh, take the size and spending structure of countries and see what is uh, uh, the overall effect here on output per capita of the size and structure of uh, government as well as perceived effectiveness, which interacts with uh, size. And uh, so we can build an index, which we did here for this uh, chart, which gives an idea with the contributions from size and effectiveness in green, from the structure of expenditure in pink, and from the structure of um, taxes in uh, blue. And uh, uh, what comes out of this chart is that in European countries tend to be more to the left uh, side, um, so with scope for uh, uh, more growth-friendly um, structure, I mean, scope for improvement, you know, on the left-hand side, whereas the non-European to, tend to be on the right-hand side, with the exception of the Scandinavians, uh, whom you can see on the right, and whom you can see even more on the right in this chart, which is not looking at the long-term effects on output like before, but on the long-term effects of the structure of public finance on the um, lower um, uh, part of the income uh, distribution. And so there, the Scandinavians, they benefit from the combination of um, well-structured governments plus large uh, transfer uh, programs. So you see a country like Denmark that has mo uh, moved to uh, uh, the right-hand uh, side uh, of uh, the chart. Then how can this uh, scope for... Uh, making public finance structure more compatible with growth and uh, equity be used. Uh, we know uh, this is uh, difficult in a number of cases because of these uh, trade-offs for some measures between uh, growth and uh, income distribution, actually. Here I chose another trade-off, which is environmental taxes, where we find they are broadly neutral for growth, which is why I did not discuss them before. We uh, find they have... Um, a negative uh, distributional uh, impact. Uh, this is a heavily contested debate. We find a mild uh, negative distributional impact. However, uh, I mean, they raise money. So this money can be used to cut uh, taxes that fall particularly on the lower part of the income distribution. And when you do that, and if you target a tax like the tax wedge on low-income earners, that also has a negative growth effect. You can get um, benefits uh, that uh, more than offset uh, the negative impact, and uh, we can propose a quantification of that. Then the question is, does this happen in practice? Um, perhaps we'll come back during the discussion about sort of more negative examples. Actually, there are not so many very clearly positive examples that were designed as such, but a really clean one is um, a reform that was uh, introduced uh, by the province of British Columbia, where they had a coordinated package of cutting, uh, uh, um, sorry, of, yes, cutting corporate income tax, cutting personal income tax by using revenues generated by a carbon tax, and this was designed as neutral and really presented uh, as such, I mean, re neutral in terms of uh, being uh, revenue neutral. Uh, 
actually turned out to have uh, some budgetary cost because the carbon tax worked and uh, reduced emissions and that uh, there had been no dynamic scoring of the reform. Um, so they lost a bit of revenue, but uh, that was okay from a macro uh, uh, point of view. And what is interesting is that this was a phased-in program over a number of years. Um, and it went to the end of the program. So there was a reasonable degree of political uh, acceptance. Even in this sort of ideal case, it's still difficult to do in the sense that there was a discussion at the end of the program about going further. And the discussion uh, after 2012 was, no, let's uh, stop there. So even when it works well, it is and well designed, it is um, complicated. So to um, wrap up, there is a scope for making the structure of public finance more supportive of uh, economic prosperity, including for the uh, most vulnerable groups uh, in uh, the population. I mean, one obvious uh, area, especially in the European uh, context, is public investment, which in many countries has been uh, the target of adjustment because it's a, an easy uh, way of adjusting spending uh, quickly. Um, Another promising area, this time on the tax side, is to make more use of uh, annual property taxes, which are, I mean, uh, an underused source of revenue. And actually, we are doing at the moment at the OECD a big program of work on housing, which also shows additional benefits. I mean, we can, or, or to put it differently, we can say perhaps we can say more about where these positive effects for growth come from by looking more closely at what happens in the housing market. Um, another important area is this effective tax burden for low income earners, which is actually quite high in a number of countries, uh, including because of uh, income uh, contingent benefits, which are sometimes uh, phased out too quickly so that there are high effective tax rates when uh, income uh, goes up for low paid workers. One word of um, warning to uh, finish on. Uh, value-added taxes, which is important in European context, in, oh, in, as part of this project, uh, we looked at whether this, um, I mean, value-added taxes would be one of the good ways to make room for the negative taxes that are identified here, like the effective taxes on labor. And uh, actually, what we found that is the case. Um, it's a relatively neutral source of revenue raising. However, uh, we um, identify the saturation effect, or if you want to put it differently, a Laffer curve for the value uh, added tax rate, and uh, with a maximum which is in the region around 25, 27%. Uh, percent. And uh, many European countries, I mean, they're not there, but they are sufficiently close to be uh, to this uh, rate, to be in the region where you think there is uh, not a lot to be gained by increasing uh, that rate and at the same time increasing them will generate uh, increasingly painful distortions. So um, there are other areas like environmental uh, taxes that should be looked at uh, rather than uh, that as a source of adjustment. Thank you very much for your uh, attention. Thank you very much, Boris. There is a, a wealth of information here that we're going to need a minute to, to digest the thing. Uh, so perhaps we could ask our discussions to help uh, digest some of this information. May I ask you, Sven, to, uh, to take the floor first? I have some slides as well. Yes, uh, I think the slides will be coming up. So yeah, first then I'll start already. So uh, first of all, thank you, thank you very much um, for organizing this event on quality of public finances, and also thank you for the very interesting uh, presentation with very remarkable uh, results. Uh, I think very rich. Um, this uh, event had a rather 
provocative uh, title, I think. So the, the subtitle here was, is the quality of uh, fiscal expenses and revenues more important than the budget uh, deficit? Uh, this is a question that, uh, that comes up mainly at a time when deficits and debts are of a bit less of a concern. So the sustainability concerns move a bit to the, to the, to the background. We had quite some work done on the same uh, topic just before the, uh, the financial crisis, so 2006, 2007. Uh, hopefully that's not a signal of what's, what there is to come uh, now. And coming from the, from the Commission, uh, I first looked at this, uh, at this uh, question from the perspective of uh, fiscal, uh, fiscal surveillance uh, and what it would mean for, for fiscal rules. So, when discussing with colleagues, I saw it could be interpreted in two ways. Some interpret this question uh, like, uh, should, we, should we allow more lenience on our fiscal, on our deficit uh, rules? Because uh, if countries take an effort, go through an effort to improve the quality of public finance, maybe that should allow some lenience on the budget. That's one approach or one way of looking at the question. Another one was, it's all about if the quality of public finance is, is important, the member states can do that within their budgetary constraints, so we do not need to be more lenient on the budget, uh, and they can manage within this 50% uh, that, they, that they control. Um, in the end, uh, probably, there are different objectives uh, and different processes for the, for the, um, for the deficit and debts, which mainly, mainly um, uh, are about sustainability versus stabilization, and the quality of public finances, which prime objectives are more, as you look at as well, the longer-term uh, growth, distribution, greening, well-being uh, effects. There is, of course, some link between the two. Yeah, the, the, there's a growth link, and with that, the sustainability link. But the question is, is this of first-order importance or not? So maybe we should keep these, these processes uh, separate and both have an interest and a merit in their own, in their own right. So I want to raise three questions or issues today. The first one is on, a lot of attention is on the composition of public finances. So on the expenditure side and on the revenue side, and in particular on the expenditure uh, side, uh, we may wonder whether it's really the composition that we want to focus on, and is it not more, is the composition maybe of second order importance, and is it not more about the efficiency? So more about the how we spend than how much uh, we spend. Second point is, as I'm from the Commission, I will, I will recall a bit how, how in our work, our, co our coordination uh, processes in the EU, we do look at quality of public finances, what role uh, it plays and what instruments we have, what recommendations we give. And third, I want to very briefly look at public investments uh, in particular. Now, starting first on composition versus uh, efficiency. Um, Boris already mentioned that uh, it's important to look deeper into, into the details, so that's something that I, I would like to, to look at here. There is quite some literature on social and economic uh, outcomes of, uh, of spending, and um, it generally doesn't come to very strong or homogeneous conclusions. So the, the literature is quite diverse. So I, I think it's a great effort that you made coming with quite strong uh, conclusions on the decomposition effects uh, on growth, but generally they conceal large differences of subcategories of spending. So that's one issue we should look deeper at micro level 
Um, for example, if you look at education, here we look at, you looked at education as a whole as an important uh, growth enhancing expenditure. Uh, but you may want to look more in detail. For instance, there's the research from uh, Nobel laureate James Heckman showing that especially early childhood education is the, the prime uh, expenditure uh, target by which you can really enhance growth and social outcomes. And even, even when you do that, you may want to look again at micro level. How do you do that? Even there, when you, when you have some, uh, some uh, evidence, there's still difference on the ways you can do that. Another example is reducing class size is, is a topic uh, in education, again, that's often looked at and generally is not considered a very um, efficient in the way you can enhance student uh, achievement. So, um, again, what kind of reforms matter? The country settings matters. The degree of public and private spending in different categories matter. What's the institutional structure and the quality of governance that you also uh, mentioned is extremely important. So overall, maybe how the money is spent may be much more important than how much is uh, spent. Now this I, I, I show for illustration. It's very simple. It's not at all as, uh, as deep and thorough as the work that's, that you have done, but it gives some illustration of quite large differences with achievements that are made with different uh, degrees of or different amounts of, uh, of um, public expenditure as a share of GDP, um, what they do with student outcomes. Even more difficult it is looking at, uh, at outcomes on, uh, uh, on economic growth or GDP per capita. So this is an intermediate outcome where we, that we look at is the PISA scores for educational uh, achievement. So we did this same exercise for education, health, social spending, and looking at a range of different outcome indicators, in, including growth, subjective well-being, inequality, life expectancy, etc., and looking at spending as a share of GDP and spending uh, per capita. Uh, and overall, for all these exercises, they show very similar uh, results. So what the main message to me is of this is... Uh, there seemed to be quite some, um, some scope for improving efficiency uh, or effectiveness of measures. If you compare across countries, uh, take Cyprus or Denmark, both spending 5% uh, of GDP on, uh, on education, both could increase uh, efficiency by moving to the left, yeah. spending much less, achieving the same outcomes. It's very simplistic analysis, yeah, but it, it, it does give some signal. Maybe what do other countries do better? And the same they can, uh, with the same with the same spending, many member states could maybe uh, achieve higher, um, higher outcomes. So the uh, effectiveness uh, could, be, could be improved. Um, so combining this simple uh, graph with the findings in the broad literature, it may indicate that better outcomes are often uh, possible with the same expenditure by spending better rather than more on, uh, on some of these, uh, these expenditure items. So second point I wanted to, to uh, address uh, is the EU surveillance uh, context. Uh, in the process um, for coordinating national economic policies, we have the process called the European Semester. It's one of our main uh, tools and it also uh, is used to improve the quality of public finances. Uh, and over the years we've addressed many recommendations to, to member states. Um, and it's not a coincidence, maybe, that, uh, that the measures that are listed here as the ones that are, that are most often uh, shared with member states 
who quite a degree coincide with what you found as win-win um, measures, and especially on the tax side, where you also said it may be easier to analyze on the tax side, the findings may be easier than on the, uh, on the uh, expenditure side. So here's just a list of the, uh, of the issues that, that uh, Boris just mentioned before as well, lowering the tax burden on labor, uh, reducing the tax wedge for low-wage earners, uh, in addition, broadening tax base, improving tax compliance, again, uh, making use of lessons learned by other member states, uh, applying best, uh, best practices. And on the expenditure side, for some member states, indeed, uh, we, we, we stress the importance of safeguarding growth-enhancing expenditure. Despite caveats there are, but then it may be if there's, if there's a lot of pressure on these expenditure items, this is signaled uh, in these member states, and in addition, increasing the effectiveness of public spending, including by recommending uh, spending reviews. Um, now, one, one concern we have here that may come up at the end or in the discussion as well, is that implementation of the, uh, of the recommendations is rather poor. A uh, question is also, why is it poor if many of them are win-win? Yeah, so that's an issue that we should look into uh, more deeply. Now, uh, a quick look at, uh, at investments. Um, as there was a dramatic fall in investments since the crisis, and it has not uh, recovered, and is so still well below pre-crisis uh, levels. If you look at, uh, say, the net fixed capital formation in the, in the euro area, it's close to, to zero. Uh, so that is some cause for, for concern, uh, as it not only is important for uh, potential growth and competitiveness, it also is one of the drivers for demand in the, in, uh, in the recovery. And another aspect of quality of public finances that's not often uh, discussed is the, uh, is the budgetary flexibility. Increasingly many items, budgetary items that are more flexible and discretionary are being replaced by items that cannot easily be reduced or adjusted because they are explicit or implicit entitlements. So you get budgets may increasingly move towards more entitlement-based spending, implicit or explicit, so pensions, uh, social expenditure, uh, very difficult, uh, difficult to adjust and with, with that having an impact on sustainability of public, uh, of public finances. What can be done about the low investment? European fiscal boards and many academics suggest, for instance, introducing some fiscal golden rule in surveillance, but we know there are many caveats, very, very tricky, very difficult to introduce uh, in practice. Now, I end with some, uh, some questions. Uh, much of the uh, quality of public finance analysis is on the macro composition of expenditure. Uh, probably, we should focus more on efficiency, looking more at micro uh, aspects, looking at spending reviews, and maybe also making more use of uh, increasing available micro data, new methods, stronger uh, evidence, evidence on what works in, time, uh, in terms of, uh, of reforms. As I said, the implementation is, uh, is disappoint, uh, disappointing, and how to bring on board crucial stakeholders is a, is a question here how to engage in a real uh, dialogue based on, the, uh, on evidence. Some examples are, it may be 
to do with the with institutions at national level, institutions at, at EU level. Example is in the Netherlands, the, uh, the Central Planning Bureau, for instance, uh, publishes promising policies analysis. So they have a comprehensive set in a specific uh, expenditure category, so education. They make an overview of existing uh, evidence and research of a certain quality based on uh, micro data, micro analysis, and then they give policy makers an, an overview of how effective it is, what the trade-offs are, etc. So that gives an overall basis and a policy choice to policy makers based on very strong, uh, strong uh, evidence. I also think the OECD approach is very important when they look at distribution combined with the economic effects, again allowing uh, identifying win-wins where possible and uh, allowing uh, seeing trade-offs uh, trade where possible as well. So that's, uh, that's another very, uh, very useful uh, step forward. Uh, last ele element or last questions are on environmental taxes. They will be important, increasingly important in the years ahead. Uh, how do we deal with the, uh, with the emission reduction? Most efficient is probably carbon pricing, but there may be important uh, trade-offs but maybe they're not so important as, uh, as Boris just, just said, but there may be trade-offs on how to deal with them. Uh, well, in, in, the, in the presentation by, by Boris, he, he said uh, it should be combined with cuts in effective taxes on low-income labor. Should it be low-income labor or more just low incomes, then you deal with all kinds of new trade-offs between making work pay, uh, unemployment trap, uh, in-work poverty uh, trap. Where do you increase the marginal uh, tax rate. So maybe overall, I say there, 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 there are many more questions uh, for discussion on this very interesting topic. Yeah, thank you, Sven. I, I don't think you've narrowed down the, uh, the information that, uh, that we received from Boris earlier on, but they're all very interesting, very interesting questions. But let me just take perhaps Francesco's uh, comments as well, and then we can come back to uh, discussion. Well, thank you very much. Um, I, I must admit that, that uh, the first time I was really exposed uh, to this uh, uh, qualitative public finance, I was a bit like St. Paul on the way to Damascus. I mean, I, I was struck by this because I was very much concentrated on the usual quantitative issue. I mean, uh, what is a deficit? What is a level of debt? Uh, and, of course, I knew that there was something behind that, but I never really paid much attention, nor did I uh, realize uh, that uh, you can go much beyond uh, saying, yes, it matters. Uh, I mean, you can measure the way it matters. You can measure the uh, consequences of one or the other way of uh, uh, composing uh, public uh, uh, finance. Um, so I have some analytical questions and I have some policy uh, question on this issue of, of public finance. I mean, if you, like me, listen every uh, eight times a year to what the president of the ECB has to say in his press conference, you would realize that he always mentioned to look at the composition of uh, public finance uh, to find out ways to foster growth uh, without touching uh, on the balance and without touching on, on, on the deficit. So he stresses uh, this point of qualitative public finance, even if he doesn't call it that, uh, uh, that way. And yes, I mean, this looks sensible. I mean, when you listen to him, yeah, he must have a point. Uh, but 
then you ask, what is the empirical evidence about this? I mean, is it strong? And what I found in, 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 in the presentation based on the OECD material, which is consistent with, with what you said, is that the empirical evidence is quite strong. I mean, there is quite a lot that you can do by working uh, on the composition. And then there is a question of the efficiency, which is the next, uh, the next step. But already working on the composition, you can do quite uh, uh, a lot. Uh, and what is even more interesting, in a way, uh, is uh, that you can do a lot not only on growth, as Draghi says, but also on inequality. And even if environment and climate uh, are not uh, the uh, emphasis in the OECD studies, there is something about, uh, uh, um, about green. Uh, so, okay, you have a tool that can do something on growth, can do something on inequality, can do something uh, for the climate. That, that seems to be, I mean, the... Um, what you could uh, uh, dream of in your um, uh, in your best uh, in your best uh, dream, uh, and then um, there is uh, the question of can you go beyond the composition to the effect efficacy effectiveness? I mean, so yes, it's one important step to look at the composition. The next step, which is probably probably. Uh, empirically much more difficult, much more complicated, is not to look only at what, how much you spend on education, but which is uh, the effect of education, how effective is uh, education or investment or, or health or whatever uh, other uh, item on the uh, revenue or tax uh, uh, or, uh, invest or expenses side of uh, public finance. Um, so I, I think that uh, the um, theoretical and empirical foundation of qualitative fiscal policy are robust. So it's not only promising, but we do have elements to say, well, yes, we, we have something here on which we can, uh, we can work. Uh, and we heard something uh, from Boris about how the estimates of this famous uh, Laffer curve um, fit into the discussion about qualitative fiscal policy. And my understanding is uh, that um, this is too rough a way to look at public finance uh, to really address uh, the issue of the... You have to take that into account, uh, but that is really very first uh, approach to qualitative uh, public finance. So these are my analytical questions. Uh, these are my uh, economic policy uh, question. Um, there seems to be a lack of attention uh, in discussions at all levels, public opinion, uh, government, academia, um, a lack of attention to this qualitative aspect of public policy and an over-concentration on... Uh, uh, on the quantitative, uh, on the quantitative, uh, on the quantitative side. So my answer to the question is: Would a shift from the quantity to the quality be justified? Yes, in red and uh, and, uh, and, and and strong point. Um, then we come to a more difficult issue: um, public acceptance uh, of uh, of qualitative public finance. 
things. When you really have to tell people, no, I'm sorry, uh, you, you cannot have more of this, uh, and you can have uh, uh, less of this, and you have to pay more taxes here. Uh, it seems that qualitative public finance meets more hurdles than quantitative. And I understand that British Columbia is an interesting case, uh, but this is a province in Canada. Uh, and uh, so we are not talking about uh, a large sample of countries uh, that manage to do these, uh, these uh, kind of things. Uh, so uh, is it more difficult uh, from some uh, uh, economic policy uh, point of view? Um, then the other question uh, is whether this qualitative public finance is and should remain a purely national uh, issue uh, or whether there is some role uh, for international organization. Um, and I understand, also following up on the uh, uh, EU experience, uh, that the success is at best mixed. But on the other hand, if you look at some of the charts of, of bodies, where you see the huge disparity between countries, I mean, from the worst to the best, you realize that there is an enormous opportunity for uh, everybody trying to move towards uh, the efficiency frontier. And you would think that the role of uh, international institution there would be crucial, would be critical in, in helping countries do what is good for themselves. Um, uh, my, my, my last point uh, is, of course, we know uh, that uh, the attempt to guide the quantitative fiscal policy in the euro area by means of rules is, what word should I use? <laughs> <laughs> complicated, uh, to say the least. I would not belong to those who say that this has been a failure, because it has not been a total failure, but it has not been a, a, a success either. Um, so we start from mixed situation as far as uh, rules for quantitative public finance. The question is, is it possible to have rules in qualitative public finance, or we just have to say, well, no, structured discretion is the only way uh, to go. So one question is national versus international, and the other is rule-based versus uh, uh, discretionary, even if uh, um, uh, structured uh, discretionary uh, approach. So these are my, uh, my questions. I also uh, try to extract uh, from the two presentations some answers to my, uh, to my question. Uh, and the, the one message I would, I would reinforce is, yes, we have to do more uh, on uh, qualitative public finance. Great. Thank you very much, uh, Francesco. Um, Boris, would you like to take a few comments uh, from what you've heard and then we can have a little dialogue between us and then we open up the floor? With, pl with pleasure, yes. Uh, thank you very much uh, for the, the, the appreciation and, uh, the, and, and all the insights. Uh, I um, wanted to pick up on, uh, on a few points, um, on uh, the point that Sven mentioned that things are clearer on the tax side. I would say that, yes, it's definitely the case. Actually, from a 
A technical point of view we see this that when we estimate the effects with the confidence bands, these confidence bands are narrower for the tax side. And I think it's related to this fact that uh, taxes look more alike across countries than spending uh, programs do, which um, indeed leads to um, what happens within programs. And here a key area is education uh, indeed. We, I mean, when we apply this approach uh, that I've uh, presented uh, before, we find no link between how much countries uh, spend on education and the long-term economic performance or inequality. Actually, what uh, we tried something else, which I did not report, uh, which is that we look at uh, PISA scores and years of education. When we do that, we find that, yes, if we take um, PISA scores together with uh, the average number of years of education, there is some link with long-term uh, economic uh, performance, which means that what matters there is not really how much money goes into the machine, but what is the, the, the quality that goes out of the spending programs. This is, uh, I will have to qualify, this is something that holds for uh, OECD and uh, EU countries. If we look at lower income levels, uh, if we go below the levels of education spending that you have in countries like uh, Portugal, Greece, uh, if you go below to the middle income countries and a fortiori to the low income countries, there you have a very tight link between uh, how much uh, countries spend on education and uh, the uh, scores of uh, the education systems on uh, quality measures. So there is a link up to a point, but our advanced countries are beyond that link and in the area where uh, the quality of uh, programs matter more. Which um, uh, then there is a last point on uh, which I would like to um, say a few words, which is, I mean, this question as to if there are win-win uh, uh, options, uh, why don't see we more of this uh, happening? Um, and uh, it is also related to this question about uh, granularity. And for me, an example of that is comparing this uh, British Columbia reform that we talked about uh, before with the set of measures that uh, the French government took, um, when was it, two years uh, ago. If you look at them, uh, they were not so different. France was uh, reducing corporate income tax. It was reducing uh, social security contributions, uh, and uh, especially the ones that fall on um, uh, lower income earners. And uh, a, a good chunk of that was funded by an increase in uh, fuel uh, taxes. So uh, if you put the bullet points for that, they don't look very different from the bullet points for British Columbia. However, what was... Uh, and. And the difference is that, I mean, it was not acceptance. Uh, uh, what happened was the Gilets jaunes movement and a lot of backtracking and probably the, the case for environmental taxes has been damaged for a long time in the French uh, policy discussions. So what was the, the difference uh, between uh, the two? Well, technically, one was that it was not simultaneous because in the initial plan, the cut in social security contribution was gradual, was due to uh, occur over time. Perhaps more importantly, uh, it was really not announced as a package. The tax cuts measures were announced first, and then there was a recognition that uh, there was a budget hole that has to be filled, and fuel taxes were picked. 
And uh, then that's where the first area where we need to get more granular to understand what happens is that it was an increase in fuel taxes and not a carbon tax. In sense, I should be more precise, it was an increase mostly on motor fuel taxes, which are already uh, sort of the items that in terms of carbon taxation are the most uh, taxed, and that was including a lot of other emissions that were not covered, whereas the British Columbia carbon tax was a true carbon tax. Uh, uh, all sources of emission of CO2 were... Uh, uh, covered, so that includes uh, heating oil, uh, this, uh, the, uh, this kind of things. And then another th um, source of difficulty, which probably is more, uh, uh, in a way, more challenging, because the ones I mentioned before were more about design and communication. The one that is probably more challenging is that when uh, we do our uh, analysis, we look at uh, what happens to low-income earners, and we find that, indeed, if we package higher environmental taxes with the lower taxation of low-income earners, um, all groups are better off. But if we look within these groups, we'll still see differences. If, um, if we, and that will be uh, between urban and rural uh, poor uh, people, that uh, if you do a move like this, the people who have more use of motor fuels who live, uh, when we live in the land, uh, a number of them will still be net losers within this group of um, I mean, um, people who are in the first two quintiles of the uh, income distribution, whereas uh, the urban poor who can rely on public transportation will get the, f will get the full benefit of the lower uh, income tax without having uh, the motor fuel uh, offset. And indeed, if we look at the geography of what happened in France with the Gilets Jaunes movement, it was very much that. It was not an urban uh, movement. It was not about the banlieue. It was really about uh, the, country, uh, the countryside. Uh, so that in practice, this kind of uh, tricky questions uh, arise uh, and uh, have to be dealt uh, with by packages that are even, I mean, more um, uh, carefully designed uh, at a more granular level than... Uh, 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 than just uh, these big uh, items. Uh, I was wondering if I could probably chip in in the conversation. I mean, it's very difficult to disagree with what you said there, Francesco, that, you know, the quality of public finances really is something we should pay attention to. I mean, you know, how much we get for one, for one euro we spend, it's an important, an important thing. But the implementability of this is really is actually a challenge. We might actually shift the discussion towards more quantitative rules like the ones we are following, simply because they're a lot easier to monitor and, and a lot more, you know, they, they don't have the discretion that, that uh, the qualitative finance... Uh, uh, requires, but there was some interesting. Since you, since then, you brought up the education graph, which I thought was extremely, uh, extremely telling in this respect. Um, I, I wonder what to make of it. Of it, there was two countries that I, I sort of picked up, which uh, you had Bulgaria and Cyprus, which achieved the same PISA score, but Cyprus spent twice as much to get to that to that effect. Right. So you know, you can by looking at this graph, you can say that there is efficiency gains here. You can achieve the same results in a, in PISA scores if you were to uh, sort of half your expenditure. But is that correct? I mean, the efficiency frontiers that, uh, that uh, you know, I think you brought it up, uh, Francesco, is an important thing. And it cannot, be, uh, um, it cannot be a general efficiency frontier. Cultural aspects, uh, systems uh, matter. Um, and in fact, if I wanted to be provocative, Cyprus is one of the richest countries in Europe. So if you were simply to correlate expenditure and education and growth, so you know the level of welfare, you have huge you have huge gains there by bypassing PISA scores, right? With Bulgaria, which is one of the poorest countries, 
spends also much less, uh, you know, that's actually what is the matter is at the end the result is actually uh, uh, welfare and, you know, the PISA score is an intermediate step. I'm being provocative here for the sake of argument. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, how do you define efficiency frontiers? Right? You can take this to example because I think that's an important one. Cyprus is going to be one of the richest countries here, spends a lot on education, happens to do rather poorly in terms of the PISA scores, uh, but actually achieves very good welfare uh, as a result. So, you know, wh where is the efficiency frontier? And, you know, it is multidimensional, the efficiency frontier, and it will, not be it will be very different, I think, from country to country. And, and, and while I'm that, I mean, I also wanted to raise a question about the definition of what you mean, um, so a win-win reform, right? Because, I mean, you know, you're quite clear about the fact that a reform that reduces uh, inequality is a good thing. But you don't do this intergenerationally. You do this within generations, right? Uh, if you were, and, and you know, if you were to put in the sustainability argument, then you start bringing in inequalities across generations, which I think are, or, or you know, fairness across generations, if you like, which I think is a very important argument when it comes up to public finances, because you are either uh, front-loading or you're pushing to the to the future uh, expenditure items that uh, uh, produce certain certain outcomes. And of course, in your ex in your uh, uh, exercise, you don't take into account short-term effects, right? But short-term effects are really what are going to uh, make or break the implementability of these measures, uh, because they, are, they happen to be implemented at a very high discount factor. Um, so, you know, the, all these types of difficulties, the, uh, the, the, the worth of the argument notwithstanding, uh, is, I mean, I wonder how, how easy it is to implement these things um, and actually see visible visible uh, differences. <laughs> yeah. That's for, for, uh, for me, yes. Uh, well, the, on the latter, yeah, the short-term effects, yes, they can be, um, uh, they can be, I mean, yes, they can be obstacles. Sometimes they can uh, work on the positive side. For instance, public investment making, uh, I mean, uh, shifting uh, spending towards uh, public investment. This is one area where the short-term effects uh, should work uh, in the positive side, that you would have um, uh, even bigger effects, positive effects in the short term than the long term, uh, uh, since, uh, I mean, most of the literature on Keynesian multipliers finds that uh, within uh, spending, it's the area that has the biggest, uh, the biggest demand effect. So there, uh, uh, that is um, an area where uh, the, uh, there is um, there is support. On um, yeah, the, actually the, the tax reforms like uh, tax cuts uh, for the uh, for the poor finance, for instance, uh, by uh, VAT increases. This is also not too bad from a short-term perspective. You also have employment effects that will come in support. However, as I said before, the problem is that they, I mean, this is a sort of measures that are available mostly in non-European countries in the sense that the, in Europe, the room for increasing the VAT rate uh, is uh, I mean, largely used in most countries. What remains in Europe is more broadening the tax base for VAT, but that is also kind of worms from a, uh, an implementation point of view because the broadening the tax base, that means taking away or reducing uh, the VAT exemptions, but uh, these VAT exemptions have very strong constituencies uh, uh, defending them. On uh, yeah, the intergenerational point, yes, it's, our analysis is, um, yeah, is 
is not informing this debate. Huh? That is uh, absolutely the case. And uh, it is um, with one area where uh, surely also the question of not only the stroke, the quality, but the quantity of public finance comes back because then the question of debt becomes a huge one for uh, international, uh, for intergenerational fairness, um, which is why in particular when we um, take uh, the results of our empirical work to the policy debate. Um, the, the area where we are most cautious is uh, pension, where we will tend to draw also with the, from a lot of other analysis, because, I mean, anything said on pensions has to take into account the intergenerational aspect uh, as well. Um, on the empirical... Um, Basis, so I thank you for the, 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 the comments, and I would like to say that it's, uh, we, we have a lot of quantitative results here, and that's what we wanted, because we wanted to be capable of providing concrete uh, support when uh, we have discussions with countries uh, in the context of our country reviews, and countries uh, would like to know what kind of benefits uh, they can expect from reforms they are planning. Uh, however, this is not the only source of uh, confidence we have in the, the direction of the results, uh, that uh, all the, uh, the results were cross-checked with the literature in the, in the relevant uh, area. Because uh, I mean, one has to be careful with uh, any uh, single empirical exercise before taking it to the... Um, yes, to the... Uh, policy uh, debate and uh, the big um, uh, question that um, uh, Francesco raised about the role for international organizations. Uh, how can we push? I'm convinced we can uh, do it uh, really by this uh, yes, transfer of uh, experiences in addition to this uh, cross-country evidence uh, that uh, we have been uh, putting on the table. In an OECD context, it is uh, reasonably straightforward in the sense that we have a peer review process. We have uh, recommendations that uh, are really made for the benefit of our member countries, but uh, we are nudging institutions. We uh, then countries, uh, I mean, we have an, uh, yeah, there, are, there are no legal mechanisms in the uh, economic area to. Um, force uh, implementation so that that facilitates the, dia the dialogue. If it, uh, um, I mean put, it's indeed a very difficult subject to put in uh, more uh, uh, enforcement kind of mechanism, starting with the measurement. We know that even for the aggregate numbers, measurement is difficult. But uh, here, uh, measurement is really uh, tricky. And uh, I mean, there is a practical aspect of the work we did that illustrates that, that we to build this database on the spending side. Um, in a number of cases, we really had to do work to reclassify from one country to another to make sure things were comparable. And so that means that um, if these uh, items become too close to hard uh, targets, then the, the potential for classifying, uh, reclassifying uh, is relatively high. So the, there has to, or to put it in other terms, I think there is a lot of support that can be uh, brought internationally, especially by transfer of exp uh, experience. But for this kind of measures, which are really close to people, there has to be a good degree of national buy-in for uh, this to happen. Absolutely. Uh, Sven, did you have any comments, San Francisco, any quick comments before we come to the audience? Uh, Maybe one, one more. I think if yeah. we look at the debate and the question
questions that were raised, they all, to me, point in the same direction, that we should look more disaggregated microanalysis, assessing losers across many different dimensions. So you already looked at income deciles. You raised the time dimension, short-term, longer-term, the ge geographic dimension. Uh, so there, there are many dimensions to look at. We need to look more disaggregated case by case. The same for the question on, uh, on the spending versus intermediate outcomes, final outcomes. We, want to, we need to understand much better what's behind. So in all, to me, that leads to think about the, um, the questions that you raised, if we need to look on a country-by-country country basis, uh, or the qualitative measure, looking deeper, there's a heterogeneous uh, setting, makes it very difficult to come up with rules and leads to think of the policy, policy context to have softer coordination tools, learning from best practices. Maybe the one thing that you, that, that you raised as well is it's not enough in the debate, in the public debate. That may be something on which we can do much, much more. Francisco, any comments? No, I mean, uh, I, I think I would uh, uh, leave the floor. Just, I mean, Sven insisted on going one step further, not looking just how much you spend, but also the effectiveness. Your kind of quantitative exercise, could it be done by increasing this further refinement, or you would have to move from a more quantitative to a more qualitative uh, kind of, which would mean somehow a loss uh, of, of, of precision. I mean, if you would rewrite this paper following Sven's uh, suggestion, could you take into account of the, the effectiveness of the spending and not only the size of the spending? It has to be done uh, differently, in the sense, we, because we, uh, we, what we cannot do, actually, we did, um, uh, was to, we take our, uh, the spending areas we have and we split them into subcategories and we try to do the same exercise. Actually, there, the cross-country comparability problems really become way too big. Um, we cannot do that. So to, to go more granular, the approach has to be different and it has to be something that is not unified across uh, spending programs, but specific. It will have to be one exercise for education, one exercise for health, uh, uh, maybe one exercise for civil justice, uh, and so on, because there really the, uh, the structures are different, the sources of efficiency and uh, inefficiency will be different. And picking up another point you made about the efficiency frontier in education, is for instance, I, uh, I think in practice what uh, could be done is to look maybe not at the absolute level of spending and uh, look at the efficiency frontier with PISA score, but uh, do things like uh, look at how much is spent relative to the level of income in the country to avoid this problem because it's what, when you look at the chart and efficiency frontier, the, the richest countries, they tend to be uh, inside uh, because of this phenomenon, even if there are some interesting exceptions. I remember from the chart that Germany was on the frontier, mm. even if uh, it's uh, a high-income uh, country, which uh, suggests uh, there are probably things that are done uh, um, uh, right in Germany after the wake-up call of, uh, that were done right after the wake-up call of PISA in, the, in yeah. the early 2000s. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Well, why don't we then uh, just open up the floor for questions from our, from our public? Uh, could we have the microphone, please? So we have two questions here, one at the back and here on the front. Uh, could you introduce yourself? And, yeah. 
At, uh, I'm a lecturer at the University of Brussels and in an earlier life I've worked in the Commission on those issues as head of unit in DG taxation and was involved also in the European semester. Uh, I, I had uh, two questions. One, uh, as you mentioned, VAT uh, and VAT rates. Uh, you have mentioned in the discussion the, the exemptions of VAT, but you also have the VAT reduced rates, which, and, and there, there is a lot of literature that shows that VAT reduced rates is a very poor instrument uh, to redistribute uh, income, and, and uh, in some member states, you could uh, get a lot of additional revenues by, by uh, phasing these reduced rates out. On, uh, and I wanted also to draw the attention to environmentally harmful tax incentives uh, uh, and, and subsidies. It's not only a question of increasing environmental taxation, but the first step would already be to phase out uh, these uh, harmful subsidies and tax incentives. And you have, uh, I think, an example that should be well known in this room is the company car taxation in Belgium. Uh, and that is, I think, an interesting example because the, the Commission has, since years, and, and uh, also other, the OECD uh, probably as well, recommended to phase this distortionary system uh, out. Also, the Bureau du Plan, for instance, has worked on this in Belgium. So far, to little avail, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, simply because politicians uh, have understood that the voters are extremely eager to keep the company cars, even to sit in the traffic jams with them, uh, and are afraid to, to rectify this, although it, it is something that has a sizable macroeconomic welfare loss, um, uh, and, and uh, a lot of revenues could be also um, uh, uh, found in, in rectifying this. And I think it's an illustration of the problem is why does it not work uh, or not to the extent that we would wish. It's because of political economy factors that, uh, that um, block sensible decisions from being uh, adopted and implemented. Thank you. There was a question here from Lars and then one at the back. Thank you. <clears throat> Lars Hogart formerly with the Commission now with uh, consultancy trade up. Uh, thanks for the uh, presentation. I think it was uh, very good that we start this kind of a, a discussion. But it does lead me to the observation that uh, unfortunately we didn't have that kind of discussion when the St Stability and Growth Pact was uh, put together. Because the Stability and Growth Pact, as to quote a former Commission president, is stupid. Uh, in the sense that uh, it completely ignored uh, what kind of expenditure, uh, what kind of revenues uh, that we were talking about, just had these absolute figures on debt and uh, deficits. So now in, a, in an environment with uh, low interest rates or zero, even negative interest rates, uh, the argument has been always that with a deficit and with uh, debt burdens, this would be a burden on future generations. But in a, an environment where we are now, future generations would be legitimately criticizing us, criticizing us for not undertaking 
uh, growth-enhancing types of investments, even if that did lead to a exceeding of the 3% deficit or whatever rule we have. Because the growth-enhancing uh, investments, whether it be bridges or highways or research and development or education or whatever, uh, means that the cake is, is larger in the future. And with inflation, the uh, payback is, is, is lessened. So future generations would say, you had the Stability and Growth Pact, but you missed the train. You should have done quite the contrary. You should have increased expenditure, uh, and especially the quality of it. And I think in that connection, it's uh, unfortunate that we haven't had that discussion before. But now, if we can have it, it makes uh, a lot of sense. The point is really then, can you agree amongst uh, the Eurozone and uh, within the EU, what is a quality investment? Does it prove to be growth enhancing uh, what you're you know, spending money on? And you can have quite a fierce argument about that. But as long as you have the dogmas of Schwarze Null, for example, in Germany hanging around, it completely blocks for that kind of constructive uh, discussion. So I think that's a, that's a way forward. Just one observation. Um, corporate taxes. This is now being discussed also in the OECD. And uh, there was uh, this uh, conference the other day where a Swedish analysis was made by which, uh, in principle, corporate taxes should be zero because it reduces the profits, it reduces the capital base, it reduces thereby the investments that a company uh, would otherwise undertake. It uh, puts pressure on wages in that company. It can't afford to pay as much as it otherwise would be. So it's negative. Basically, that's the concept. Corporate taxes are negative on growth. I would like to hear your views on that because that's quite provocative it is, yeah. in the sense that maybe the cake would be uh, at least as big or bigger, but how do you ensure that the distribution of taxation on the rest of the population and in particular of the low income uh, population is assured so that it doesn't increase inequality by that kind of thing? Thank you. Thank you, Lars. Uh, let's take the last question there on the back. Thank you, Benedict Madl from uh, DigiDefco. Um, I was wondering uh, on the definition um, of quality uh, in public finance. Uh, I mean, we, we work a lot with partner countries on public finance management, uh, PFARs, and looking at the administration. And, and, and obviously, there's also lots of qualitative uh, issues there, but it, it, it relates to the, to the administration, all the losses you do in bad procurement, etc. So, I mean, but what I understand is that you, in all that analysis, you don't look at all at that, but you, you simply look at the, at the policy side. But on the other hand, when, when President Draghi speaks about, you know, improvements in, in, in public finance, he might as well refer to that administrative side where you actually also can gain a lot uh, and, and, and reduce costs on the one side or have more efficiency in spending uh, on the other side. So what is actually your 
I mean, what is what is the the, the, the definition? And I mean, obviously, it would be different from from the spending and from 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 the revenue side. Thanks. Can we come back to you, Boris? This is a very specific question. If you can want to take that, but the others are a bit more general. We can involve everyone in the panel. Yes, maybe. Yeah, this one. To some extent, we pick up with the, the, the measure of effectiveness, even if it's perceived, it's by the, the, the people who are benefiting from the, uh, from the government services. Actually, we try to, to look at it by using other World Bank indicators about quality of administration, etc., but they are um, uh, highly correlated, so it's difficult to distinguish, and they all capture the same thing. Actually, to do this properly, and uh, that could be part of this agenda for the future of looking within uh, sectors. I think when we, when we talked to before about education and uh, health, uh, this, uh, these items, but when we talk about investment and also general administration, if we want to look at the quality of investment, we have to look at the procedures that are in place to manage it, to screen the investments, to manage uh, the, the projects when they are being uh, developed, and to evaluate uh, ex post. And uh, the same for general administration. Uh, if we want to look at the effectiveness of general administration, we have to look at what are the procedures in place. and. Uh, there is a quantitative agenda there that is still to be uh, picked up about um, building or even using some of the indicators of how uh, public sectors are managed because there are more and more indicators that are done. We do some at the OECD. The Hertie School in Berlin is doing some. There are others. Um, and uh, relating uh, these to, uh, to measures of uh, performance. But uh, uh, yeah, this... Um, uh, I mean, I agree this is uh, important and uh, we, it's probably where we have to go for the future to uh, bring this debate uh, forward. Here we just, uh, to some extent, we touched it through the angle of effectiveness as perceived by people in the survey indicators of the World Bank, which is interesting, but is um, outcome indicator. So it would be interesting to see what are the policy levers that make this uh, outcome uh, move. And do you think that corporate taxes uh, need to be at zero? <laughs> well, uh, that's... Um, <laughs> and remain revenue neutral? <laughs> remain revenue neutral. Well, there is... Um, I, mean, the, I mean, it's a tax that generates distortion. We find, indeed, in our analysis that uh, higher corporate effective tax rates uh, are associated with lower uh, long-term economic uh, performance. Mm -hmm. However, this is estimated in a sample where, I mean, we don't go all the way to zero, so we should be careful. This is true around the historical average of our sample, which also was uh, higher than the levels we have now because we've been uh, a lot of cuts in corporate uh, effective uh, tax rate. So, I mean, there is a lot of literature about the negative effects of the corporate uh, income tax. There is also, it is true, uh, a lot of technological and policy advances that um, uh, bring uh, other ways of ta taxing capital income. Um, I mean, the, on the technological uh, side, uh, the, uh, the better tracking of, uh, of payments, transfers, uh, has allowed a better um, way for uh, tax authorities to follow, um, to follow capital income, and that has been accompanied uh, by a lot of uh, 
agreements on automatic exchange of uh, information. So there is scope for personal income tax to better tax capital income. So, so this is all the case for lower incorporate uh, um, corporate income taxes. But this will um, never be to zero. I mean, zero cannot be the optimum because there are also a lot of economic arguments for keeping corporate uh, income tax. Uh, uh, at the, I mean, the most basic one is this idea of having withholding tax on capital income gains to uh, uh, avoid uh, leakage. I think more sophisticated is the argument that there are a lot of uh, small and medium-sized firms where it is very difficult to distinguish uh, between uh, what is spent by the firm and what is spent by the individual or the individuals running the firm. And so the capital income tax rate as zero would uh, open huge uh, possibilities for uh, tax evasion, even in a world where capital income uh, would be perfectly taxed when it is paid uh, to the capital factor. So, uh, so to me, these um, studies that come with recommendation zero capital income tax rates, I mean, I understand their logic, but I think it's a case of uh, pushing a logic to an extreme where it does not apply uh, anymore because it is, uh, it is omitting other factors uh, which become increasingly acute uh, when you, you reduce uh, tax rates. Francesco, any comments? Um, I, I would like to touch... Uh, again, on this issue of the possible, I mean, you raised that and uh, was mentioned again by that gentleman, about uh, the um, interactions between quantitative and qualitative. I mean, you said I mean, two schools of thought. One is, well, since you're doing the right things on the qualitative side, we give you more leeway on the quantitative. And the other opposite is, well, since you have a lot of room to do things on the qualitative side, don't bother me. Uh, with asking uh, for uh, leniency on the quantitative side. Um, and, and there was uh, this reference uh, to the Schwarz Null. And uh, my point of departure, and, and of course I'm, I'm willing to change my mind if, uh, if, um, if I'm convinced, uh, but my point of departure is uh, that separating the two issues would be useful. So you think what is best to do uh, on the quantitative side, um, counter-cyclical policy, yes, counter-cyclical policy, not, uh, sustainability of debt, and all these uh, things uh, that we know very well. Um, and then you have an issue of how you spend uh, and uh, get uh, revenue. And you don't, you don't mix, you don't mix the two. I mean, these are two different exercises, as I tried to, to say, and I think that this is coming. Uh, one is overemphasized, and the other is uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, a bit uh, neglected. Uh, but I would keep them separate. So maybe we need the counter-cyclical policies in Europe, yes, but that's another discussion. In the meantime, let's improve uh, on the way we spend, uh, the, way we spend the money. Any? Yeah, I would uh, agree uh, with that. On uh, maybe something else on on the you said the the pact was called too stupid. Now we're a bit more concerned that it's too smart, because it's got so many rules now that we uh, that it, the complexity is an issue, not the the simplicity. The other aspect of that is uh, you mentioned the decline in interest rate. Uh, with that as an argument, also on that the pact is a bit smarter than uh, than perceived. 
as this decline in interest rates gives fiscal space in primary expenditure. So, for instance, Belgium has got 4% more fiscal space now than it did in 1999 in primary expenditure, which is the relevant thing if you think about uh, investments. And on the, on the rest, why to keep them separate? If you have 50% of GDP in which you can decide what to use for growth and for social or other expenditure, maybe that should be sufficient and we should not worry about half percent extra or one percent extra there. That said, the, the, the uh, Schwarze Null is not an element of the EU rules and we do encourage countries with fiscal space like Germany and the Netherlands to, uh, to invest more and to, and to spend more. I wanted to also just come back to the, to the question on the, uh, on the politics that are not easy. The company car example, which is very, a very interesting one because uh, it leads to less revenues, it distorts, it is not green and not social. So bad on all fronts. And then still yeah. there's something in politics that's, that does not allow you to, ch to change it. A similar example when I worked on Ireland was children's shoes. It's not as bad for the environment, but there was low taxation on children's clothes and children's shoes. In the end, if you looked in the, in the shops, then children, the children sizes went up to 40 for the shoes or larger. <laughs> the clothes also for the children became larger and larger. And you know that there is an issue that distorts, yeah. but governments did not dare to touch it because one government had tried and had fallen on it. So then it becomes a no-go, a, a taboo. So how to address these, ty these type of things, it's challenging. I, I think, I think on, the, on, the, on the green-brown thing, there may be something to do. If we, are, uh, if we manage at measuring, creating some measures, a monitoring system for greenness or brownness of the taxation system, uh, and then allow comparing countries, and then th they find some targets or references, that may help in this type of debate. Wonderful. Um, Boris, any last word? You have one minute. Um, just to say, uh, to uh, agree with the point raised on uh, the reduced rates of VAT, yeah, they're a terrible instrument to uh, protect uh, the, the purchasing power of the poor in the sense that it works in the sense that they benefit from it, but the dead weight it cost of doing it is enormous because in terms of the amount of money, most of the money that is foregone because of these reduced rates is money that is uh, spent by the, higher, uh, by the higher income groups. So it would be much more efficient to do this kind of um, purchasing power protection uh, for the poor through uh, other instruments. Uh, but uh, I didn't know the, the Irish shoe example. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful illustration uh, of uh, the, the political difficulty of uh, improving the quality of public finances. And uh, I'm uh, happy to, um, to end on this note and with a big thank you to, uh, to everybody, to you and to everybody in the audience uh, for this. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. I hope we'll have an opportunity to discuss this topic again in the future. But for the moment, uh, please uh, join me in thanking the panelists. Thank you all for a very interesting... Uh,